I'm sure most of you have done this at one point in your life. Maybe not, but I know that I have. Have you ever ordered something in the mail? Ordered something in the mail that you were, uh, maybe it was an infomercial, maybe it was an ad you saw in a magazine, uh, maybe it's, you know, one of those comic uh, book ads when you were a kid. Uh, have you ordered something in the mail and you were <laughs> really excited about this thing? Like you were waiting for this thing, you, 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 you went to the mail every day, you checked to make sure that the, the mail was there and ready and you were thinking it was going to be there and then when it came and you got that thing, you thought to yourself, why on earth did I waste my money on this piece of junk? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe uh, you're a kid and you were reading comic books. I know this was the case for me. I would see those comic book ads and think, I have got to have hypnotic coins and x-ray glasses and uh, those kinds of things. I also uh, was tempted. I didn't do this, but I, but I wanted to buy that, uh, you know, that Atlas guy, Charles Atlas, who guaranteed that he would take you from chump to champ. Thank you. Okay. I want to, you're all going, no. Huh? Maybe it was an infomercial like the Ginsu Knives or, you know, the Juice Master, uh, the Snuggie, those kinds of things. Uh, don't admit out loud that you got the Snuggie, by the way. Uh, at least you can keep the... Okay. So, my lesson was learned with mail order junk. Um, when I was a kid looking through comic book ads, and uh, I was about seven, maybe eight, and I sent my dollar away so that I could receive sea monkeys. Anybody else see the sea monkeys in the comic books as a kid? All right, thank you. Yes, you're like, yes, I remember that now. I had forgotten about sea monkeys. I have not forgotten because I'm still a little bitter about it. <laughs> sea monkeys, for a dollar, you can own, it says that in, in bold letters there at the top, you could own a bowl full of happiness for a dollar with these sea monkeys. I learned my lesson when I wasted my hardly earned allowance money by sending away for those. Uh, if you were a kid and look at comic books, you probably saw this time and time and time again. It was a ubiquitous ad that was all over the place. The man who made his millions off of this said he ran 3.2 ads in comic books every single year for sea monkeys. They were everywhere. They promised to be your best friend. It even says there in bold, let me read this to make sure I got this right. It says, best of all, like, like you can expect this to happen. Best of all, we even show you how to teach them to obey your commands like a pack of friendly trained seals. <laughs> these things promise to be your best friend forever. And I received these sea monkeys. You were supposed to take the packet, put it in the water, and instantly you were supposed to get these, you know, a lovable, adorable uh, sea monkeys. They actually were, were tiny brine shrimp. Uh, and, and basically, when I got mine, instead of instant life, I, I put it in and basically I had instant nothingness. They just kind of, all the residue just kind of went to the bottom and sat there and I, and I waited and nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened. So, so I expected greatness and was disappointed because it didn't deliver at all. It didn't deliver at all. I'm still kind of trying to work through the trauma with a counselor, so. <laughs> I want to read something that Wikipedia said about the sea monkeys. If only we had Wikipedia when we were kids. Sea monkeys were intensely marketed in comic books using illustrations, and this is what it said, that showed humanoid animals uh, 
that bear no resemblance to the actual crustaceans. What they promised bore no resemblance whatsoever to the actuality. Then it says this, Many purchasers were disappointed by the dissimilarity, no duh, and by the short lifespan of the animals. They didn't deliver on their promise. They promised much and delivered little. There's a Bible word for this. There's a theological concept for this. Deliver a lot. I'm sorry, promise a lot, deliver nothing. Promise a lot, deliver nothing. It's a theological concept. It's a word. Many of us know I alluded to it. I alluded to it in my prayer. The word is idle. An idol promises a lot and delivers not just little, but delivers nothing. In fact, in Scripture, God says if you give yourself to idols, if you give yourself to these vain, empty things that you worship, then not only do you receive little, you receive damnation for not worshiping the only object worthy of worship on the planet. Scripture has some cool things to say about idols, and we could talk about this as its own sermon series for a long time. Um, But an idol is anything, don't miss this part, it's anything, it's anything that replaces the great worth and value that is due God alone. It's anything that replaces the great worth and value that can only be, should only be ascribed to infinite, holy, perfect creator of the universe, God. Capital G. An idol can be uh, metal, wooden. It can be something that you know you fashion into something and you worship, like like pagan deities. That was common, and in some parts of the world, it's, it's still common today. An idol can be a concept, like you can idolize the idea of finding the perfect job uh, so that I can be secure for the rest of my life. I remember growing up as a kid thinking, I've got to have, got to have a good job, got to have a good job. There's a point to which I think I sort of held that up as my life's purpose and goal. At that point, it becomes an idol in a way which is unhealthy. It could be even a person. Maybe you idolize a a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you idolize, in a sense, your spouse expecting something messianic, something that can only come from God of the person to whom you're married. Maybe you've reached those limits in your marriage. You know exactly what I'm talking about. An idol can be anything and everything. A concept, a person, a tangible object. The Bible has a lot of cool stuff to say about it. Psalm 96.5, we're going to show this up here for you. A couple uh, verses here that help us. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. They're worth nothing. They're worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. In, In contrast to the idols that are worthless, the Lord made the heavens which is to say that he alone is worthy of of, of praise and glory and and adulation and worship. He alone is worthy of that, as opposed to an idol, which is empty, vain promise. 1 Corinthians 8.4 has a cool uh, way of saying it here. 1 Corinthians 8.4, I don't think we have this on the screen for you, but 1 Corinthians 8.4 just says straight up, an idol has no real existence, like it doesn't even have any life to it. That's, that's how dead and, and useless and, and vain idols are for us. It doesn't even have any real existence to it. But let's talk straight about how we operate in our lives sometimes. 
even though they're empty and they're worthless. Who here has not worshipped something as an idol instead of God? Even though they're empty and they're vain, and, and we know this intellectually, we even read things like that in Scripture here that say they're empty, worthless, pointless, not helpful. They, they, they promise a lot, they deliver nothing. Even though they're like that, we, we worship them. Which is to say that we, we give our hearts to things that don't deliver on their promises. That means we, we bow at the idols of, of things like money and sex and power. Scripture says it's even worse than that. <laughs> it says that it's even worse than that. Not only, not only do, you, do you bow at these things that are empty and vain and take you nowhere and, and are uh, a road to damnation and eternity from God, apart from Him, not only are they that, but you begin to be shaped by that which you worship. You become what you behold. You become like that which you worship. When you, when you give your heart to something, you become like that thing that you revere. You begin to reflect the image of that. This is how I wrote it here in my notes. I want to read this to you. It says, We are being formed into the image of that in which we hope and trust. That's how worship works. That's why God alone demands worship. Because to worship anything else doesn't work. Psalm 115.8 is a, a great passage that, that shows this here. It says, Those who make them, meaning idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become what we behold. We reflect the image of that which we revere. We become what we worship. Because our efforts and our energy and our time and our money all will be about that thing that, that we are holding up as valuable, as worthy. That's why this, this gathering here may seem like just you know an hour and ten minutes of your time a week so you can punch the clock for feeling good about your spirituality. It may sort of feel like that to you, but I promise you this is sacred time of this right here, bowing down to the only thing worth your hearts. This is practice for that. So, so what are you, what are you giving your hope and trust in? What are you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for in your life? What are you placing hope and trust in? Let me, let me say it this way. Let me ask you this question. Is your life being formed into the image of something other than godliness? Because if it's true that we become what we behold, if we behold the God of the universe, if our focus is there, if, if Christ is the center of our life and, and we are keeping our eyes on who God is, then, then godliness will continue to be formed in us. And if, if in your life something other than godliness, His character and His nature, love and mercy and grace and truth, if those kinds of things aren't being formed in you, then you have an idol worship problem. Just, just think through your, your week. Just think through this past week. 
think through the kinds of things that you gave your heart to, your time to, your efforts to. Were were those forming in you a godliness, a Christ-likeness, a love in your heart for the good things of God? Did you this week want to do what is good and what is right more than you did last week, the week before, the day before? That's the trajectory of somebody who is worshiping the only, the only being, the only thing worth our worship. It's the object of our desire that will determine whether what you're waiting on, trusting in, worshiping, whether that's worthy or it's in vain. And Mary is a great model for us in this as we come to the time of the year where we remember God condescending to us so that, so that Jesus' perfect sinless life for us would count to justify us, to make us righteous before Christ so that we don't have to take on His wrath. At the time of the year, we remember the baby who grew up to be that Jesus who was perfect for us. It's important for us to take the opportunity to in this distracting time and this time with busyness and the time with lots of cooking and this time with lots of parties and this time where there's lots of money and this time where all those things are going on in our heads, those distractions, we make sure that the focus, the focus is worship of the only being worth our time. The only being valuable enough to deserve our worship. And here's what we'll find today as we study. God is worthy of our worship because he delivers on his promise. God is worthy of our worship because he delivers on his promises. In fact, listen, friends, he over delivers. He has to over deliver for us. It wouldn't work for us to be with him for forever and eternity if he didn't come and live a perfect sinless life for us. So we worship him because he delivers on his promises. Let's jump in at Luke 1 and see where we get these ideas in this passage here. Luke 1, starting at verse 13. Go ahead and uh, follow along there, if you would, please, in verse 13. It says this. This is Zechariah, who's been chosen by Lot. That's kind of like rolling the dice. Uh, Zechariah was in the the temple sanctuary there by himself, uh, offering up uh, incense, which symbolized the prayers of the saints. And, And actually, he was there by himself in that temple sanctuary, and outside of that, there were uh, the people of God praying at the time while he was inside. So that's what was going on. And while he was doing that, verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Afraid because like, hello, there's an angel there. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And Zechariah is probably like, "Uh, I'm not sure what prayer you were talking about, but okay, wow. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. So that's the prayer that he has been praying your wife elizabeth will bear you a son which is crazy because they're old and elizabeth is barren as we'll find out and you shall call his name john verse 14 and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth this is getting a little bit weird here now he's thinking many will rejoice at my son's birth okay verse 15 for he will be great before the lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And, and listen to this. This is where we start to, to, to understand why this passage is helpful and important for us in this while you wait thing. The people of God for 400 years at this point, when Zechariah is there in the temple and the angel Gabriel comes to him, 400 years of silence, they called it. 
They believed that the Holy Spirit had just gone silent. No prophets were speaking. And so they thought God was not actively leading them. And so the Holy Spirit's going to play a really important role here in our passage. So look at this. Verse 15. This is uh, the angel talking about Zechariah's son, who will be John the Baptist. We'll find that here in a second. He will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And then here it is. Here's the Holy Spirit. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is talking again. Luke is very careful to say, listen, listen, don't miss this. God's talking again. The Holy Spirit is a part of this. Verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, meaning he will go before Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is, this is the angel coming to say that God is beginning to fulfill his purposes, his promise to deliver his people. And Zechariah's own son uh, will help prepare a way for that coming Savior. Meanwhile, while all that's going on, Mary, who is related to Zechariah's wife Elizabeth, is told by this same angel that she will conceive by the hand of God (laughs) that that through the Holy Spirit in her meaning God's talking again through the Holy Spirit through the Spirit in her she will conceive by the hand of God pick it up at verse 28 there in Luke 1 that's where we'll pick up the story here Luke 1 28 and following it says and he this is about Gabriel and Mary and he the angel Gabriel came to her Mary and said greetings o favored one the lord is with you that silence of 400 years is over the lord is with you do not be afraid Mary for you have found I'm sorry, uh, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, we skipped that. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern, tried to figure out what sort of greeting this might be, which means she's sort of justifiably freaked out, wondering what this is about. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Which I can imagine she's hearing an angel, which A, is unusual, and then uh, B, say that your son is going to be named Jesus and, and God's going to do this. So things are sounding a little weird here and she's starting to, to get a little bit more of the picture as we go on here. It says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So she's getting a little more information, uh, maybe freaking out a little bit, starting to, to, to wonder what's going on here. Um, so at this point, Mary doesn't know all the implications of what the angel is, is saying here. So the answer to Mary, did you know, is maybe not yet. So the Lord God, the Lord God, verse 32, will give to him, meaning Jesus from Mary, will give to him the throne of his father, David. So Mary's beginning to, to understand a little bit of what it means here because she's from the lineage of David. She knows the Messiah is supposed to come from the line of David. And and, and then verse 33, it becomes explicit what's going on here. He will reign 
over the house of Jacob, not like temporarily like a normal king. This is like a king forever. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, which means he reigns forever, which is a big promise. Big promise. Imagine yourself as a young teenage girl from the middle of nowhere being told by an angel that through your very body will come the king who will live forever. I mean, that's not, it sounds silly to say, that's not sea monkeys promises. That's a promise, that's a promise that's beyond anybody's conception. I mean, I mean, you don't deliver on that promise. You don't deliver on that promise unless infinite, perfect, holy God is behind what's going on there. Keep reading. Verse 34. So Mary said to the angel, understandably, how will this be since I am a virgin? Good question. Keep reading. The angel answered her. Here it is. God talking to his people again. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There's the Holy Spirit again. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, meaning the presence of God through the Holy Spirit will make this happen. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And as a sign to sort of authenticate what I'm saying, Gabriel says, the one promised in Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3, you can check that out later, is being born to Elizabeth, your relative. And you can go check that out for yourself here. Keep reading verse 36. Behold, Your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So so obviously, Elizabeth is old. She's barren. She's beyond childbearing age. and, And so what's happening in her is of God. And then the angel says, verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. Imagine you're Mary. An angel shows up and tells you that the Holy Spirit will produce the Son of God from your womb. And then the angel says, by the way, your relative Elizabeth, who's uh, beyond childbearing age, is by God's power also pregnant. And, and there's going to be a connection here for what's going on between these two babies. So, so when Luke says nothing will be impossible with God, Luke is saying, hold on, because the fulfillment of the promises of God is happening here. After, after hundreds of years, after hundreds of years of the silence where they thought the Holy Spirit was quiet, no prophets in the land, the angel says, Hold on to your hats because God's going to begin to fulfill his promises. Verse 39. Let's read about this God who delivers on his promises. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. She, she hurried to go see Elizabeth into the hill country to the town of Judah. Uh, Judah was probably 50 to 70 miles away or so, about three days walk, especially for a young pregnant woman. Verse 40. And she, meaning Mary, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now the Holy Spirit shows up here again, another sign of God's intervention into the world to fulfill his promises. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. 
Now, this is Luke foreshadowing the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus here. And John the Baptist came, Isaiah 40, verse 3, to prepare the way for Jesus. So even before they're born, Jesus walks into the room through, like, Mary's womb. And this baby John points. There he is! The Holy Spirit does that kind of stuff. Not you, not natural means. Luke is saying God is fulfilling His promises in a way which no one else can, which is why He's worthy of worship. Let's keep reading. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, verse 41, and Elizabeth was filled with, here's the presence of the Holy Spirit again, the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, talking about Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the beginning of God fulfilling His promises in a way which no one can orchestrate. Unless the power of God operates. This is the end of the silence. This is, this is eternity breaking into heaven. The, the presence of the Holy Spirit is here about four different times explicitly in these passages to say God is coming to finish what He said He would do. Listen, friends, God delivers on his promises, which is to say that God's promises delivered are what warrant God's praises declared. Empty idols, vain idols, things that promise a lot and deliver little or nothing don't deserve your praise and your glory. They don't deserve your heart. So stop giving yourself to frivolous, silly things that last for a moment. God's promises delivered in the person of Christ especially, but God's promises delivered are warrant for God's praises and His worship declared. So that's what Mary does. The only, the only justifiable response for the inbreaking of God into humanity, into time, is worship. And so she worships. She worships, verse 46. Mary said, this is just a great, a great phrase, my soul magnifies the Lord. If you can say my innermost being, everything about who I am on the inside magnifies the Lord alone. If you can say that, friend, friend, you will know eternity with God. If on the inside you know there's this, this, this piece of you that just wants to magnify yourself constantly, wants to magnify 
yourself constantly or, or give yourself to these empty, vain, silly, pointless pursuits in life. There's the difference between worship of Creator and worship of creation. My soul, she says, magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Does your spirit find its satisfaction? Its satisfaction in things of God as opposed to as opposed to the things you give your heart to when nobody's looking. The things you see on your computer screen. The things you do with your money and your time when people aren't around. Does your spirit rejoice in that little gossipy lie? Do you really, I mean like, Do you like to participate in a life that rejoices in in gathering as much acclaim and and adulation for you? That's That's a scary place. That means you're worshiping at the feet of idols that are vain and empty. She says, my soul magnifies it. It makes much of the Lord. And my spirit, my innermost being, rejoices in God, my Savior. Is your heart's desire to do what's good and right that comes from the Lord alone because you worship Him? You have to be frank with yourself on this question. If you do not, on the inside, just love, love to do what's good and right because it satisfies you more than everything else. If, if that's a feeling you know, then you are God's child. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Verse 48. Because He delivers. He has looked on the humble estate of His servant, she says. He has seen me in my great need and He has met me there. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. The great thing is bringing for us salvation in Christ. He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name. Mary is just testifying to God's care for her. And this isn't just a song of praise of God's mercy for her, but for, but for all. Look at verses 50 and following there. She says, His mercy, His mercy is for those who fear Him, those who bow to Him, who worship Him from generation to generation. He has shown Strength with his arm. He is sovereign in his control. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He judges those who do not fear him. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Which is to say that he brings down, he brings down the self-proclaimed gods of this world. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. God satisfies those who seek their satisfaction in Him. And He refuses those satisfied in themselves. He has helped, verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. He didn't forget. He remembers. He delivers. 
just as he spoke to our forefathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's faith was not based on just empty uh, emotion or vain promises, but on her personal knowledge of the work of God in her life that God would deliver on his promises. She was worshiping because God did what he said he would do. If in basic, clear terms, if if you know what God has done for you in bringing for you salvation in the person of Jesus, because he lived for you the life that you can't, and your rebellious, red-handed fist at God's life that, that rejected him, if, if, if you believe that Christ in his perfection died to buy you, to purchase you salvation and freedom from sin of slavery, if you believe that, then the only response to that truth is worship. It's this. If your heart's not doing this, then where are you bowing? This is the most important decision you can possibly make to worship the only being worthy of glory and praise. Some of you are going to have to go through some real pain before you give your heart to Him like you should. Mark my words. Don't. Don't. I don't deserve your praise. Believe me. You don't deserve my praise. Each of us is infinitely unworthy of one another's praise. Only infinite, perfect, holy God of the universe who created all that is and who came in the person of Jesus to give us His perfection. That's worthy of worship. That's worthy of your heart. Let's pray, friends.